This is the Hoboken Grace Podcast. Whether you're in the car or enjoying a walk, we hope you're having a great day. Just like every weekly conversation, we hope today's message deepens your relationship with God and builds into your life in a helpful way. For access to our full podcast library, visit HobokenGrace.com or our app. If you weren't with us last week, we launched this new conversation called adulting. And, and we're looking at how do we grow up spiritually. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, it's the idea that you carry out the task of or you act as an adult, even though you may not be one. It's this idea of stepping into something that you may not be yet, but hopefully you will become. Hopefully you will become. And, and we begin to look at that in terms of our spiritual growth. We looked at this reality that God, as he steps into, uh, as he creates the story, as he puts the story in the motion, as he steps into our lives, God creates everything to grow. You may be frustrated with the fact that you have to grow. God is not frustrated with that. He creates everything to grow. It is intention that you would be, it is his intention that you would be created as less than what you could be and that you would grow into it, including, including when we're born again, including when he makes us new as we step into this relationship with Jesus. He says, okay, I'm going to create you new and I want for you to grow up in that. We see this in Ephesians 4. It says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so God says, I want for you to grow up. And so what we're doing as we move through this series is we're looking at, okay, what does it look like to grow up spiritually? What does it look like for us to begin to put into practice those things that have to do with spiritual maturity and begin to move towards that, that one day we might be able to continue to grow, not that we would arrive, but that we would continue to grow in maturing as uh, inside of our lives spiritually. And to do that, what, we're, what we've done is we've dove into the book of, or the letter called Ephesians. And we've looked at how Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's breaking down for them, okay, he's not just calling them to grow up, but he's also laying out for them, okay, this is what it looks like. This is where we're going. This is the target, which obviously we understand. If we're going to go somewhere, we need to know where it is that we're going. We're not just going to accidentally arrive there. We have to determine, okay, where are we going and how do we get there? And as he moves through this letter to the church, he's helping them see, okay, not only do I want for you to grow up, but I want you to understand where it is that we're grow going and what it looks like for you to continue to grow in this. Last week, we began in chapter one, and we saw some really powerful things that he says are true about us as we step into this relationship with him, that we are holy, that he makes us holy, that we're given the righteousness of Christ, that we are holy, that we are adopted, that we've been brought into this family. These are not things you grow into. These are things that are true of you. And then he introduces to this idea that, listen, you didn't initiate this journey. God initiated this in your life. And he, before this whole thing started, had set his love on you and decided that he's going to pursue you. And as we left off last week, we ended in, in verse 14. I want to pick up in verse 15. And as he starts, he actually references back to that. So listen to what he says. He starts off in verse 15. He says this. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For what reason? 
He says, for this reason, what is he referencing to here? He's referencing to the fact that, listen, you need to understand, before this whole thing started, God intended to pursue you. He has pursued you. He's brought you into this, not so that you could hoard it as we saw, but so that you, he's called you into multiplication so that you can give this away. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. And then he says, remembering you in my prayers. Now, as he says this, he's about to tell them what he's praying for them for. Now, you should pay very close attention to this when Paul begins to pray for someone in one of his letters, because almost always what he's praying for them to experience, he's also teaching them about. So you say, what is this letter about? What is he trying to communicate? Pay attention to his prayer because he's almost praying, almost always praying for them to realize what it is that he wants to teach them, what he wants to lead them into. And you see the same thing here. So he says, I have not stopped praying for you. Okay, Paul, well, what are you praying for? He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He shares the first thing that he prays for. He's actually going to pray for them to know two things. This is the first thing that he prays for them to know. You see, we talked about this last week. He hadn't really introduced it yet in the book, but you see that he begins now to talk about this idea of seeing, this idea of revelation. Last week, we introduced this idea that not that it's not just a few people who have disabilities. All of us have disabilities. All of us have disabilities. It's just that some of them are so typical, we don't think anything of them, including the fact that you're spiritually blind. You cannot see it. And so he says, I want, I'm praying that the Spirit would actually allow you to be able to see, that he would give you understanding, wisdom, and revelation, that you would be able to see so that you could know what? So that you could know him better. Now, this is really important. This is the first thing that he's praying for. Not just that he's praying once. He says, I keep asking. He's praying this over and over again. Okay, Paul, what are you praying for over and over again? And this is what he leads with. He says, I want for you to be able to see, and I want for you to understand so that you can know him better. Here's what I know. If I were to go around this room and I were to ask you, okay, what is this whole journey about? What is it that God's trying to do here? What is it that, what is it that God's working for? What is it that God wants from you? You know what? I, I've experienced this. I hear it over and over again. God wants for me to be able to get it right. God wants for me to change my behavior. God wants, God wants for me to love better. God wants for me to be... And it's all of these things that have to do with your actions, has all of these things that has to do with changing your moral compass, all of this, it, it, over and over again, people tell me, oh, this is, the, this is the heart of the journey. Paul says, okay, here's what I'm praying for most. That you would know him better. Why? Because the heart of this journey is not that you would change your actions. The heart of this journey is that you would know God. We have to change the way that we think about this. What's driving this, the heart of this, why it is that you were created, why Jesus gave his life for you is not so that you would change your actions. It's so that you would know him. Not just that you would know about him, that you would know him. And Paul says, this is the most significant thing I'm praying for, that you would actually know him. 
better. What is it that God wants from you? That you would know him. When we talk about it being a relationship, that's not secondary. That's primary. And so Paul's primary prayer is that they would be able to understand and see so that they would know him better. You have to understand that that is the heart of your father. And what he's calling you into, what he longs for with you, you would know him. So he says, this is what I pray for first, that you would know him better. He continues, I pray that the eyes of your heart, this is his second prayer request, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Again, you see this idea of seeing, that your eyes would be enlightened, that you're spiritually blind, but that you'd be able to actually see beyond what you can see in order that you may know, again, this idea of know, this is the second thing that he wants for them to know, so that you may know the hope to which you have been called, to which he has called you. Now, let me stop here for a second because this is a problem. This word hope is a massive problem for us. And because here's the thing, the way that God talks about hope is not the way that we talk about hope. It's so different that I'm not sure that this is the word we should translate this to. It's that significantly different because here's how we, this, this is how we define hope. The dictionary defines it this way, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So hope is that you have a feeling that you want something, that you desire for something to happen. Another, another definition that it shares is we, hope is when you want something to happen or to be the case. And this is how we talk about hope. I have hope. In other words, I, I really wish this would happen. And even, even more so, the way that we use the word hope is it's almost never used when we think it's going to happen. It's almost always used when we think it's not. So this probably isn't going to happen, but I hope it happens. This probably won't work out, but I really hope it will happen. And that's the way we talk about this idea of hope. And then we hear God use this word hope. And I, I, I actually see this with people. They'll talk about their faith this way. Like, I really hope that God is going to. I really hope. And it's just this feeling or desire that something will happen. That is not, that is not the way God talks about hope at all. At all. This is not some wish that you have. This is not some desire outside of reason that you have. No, 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 no. There's actually, there's, there's a local radio station that does this thing that drives me crazy. They do, these, they do these faith statements or hope statements and people will call in. And they, it's always, again, it's usually with things that they don't think will happen. So they'll call in and be like, I have faith that I'm going to get an A today which means they probably didn't study. Or I have, I have a hope that I'm going to have a good day at work. Or I hope I'm going to get promoted. Or I hope, like, and, and all it is is this idea that I'm wishful thinking about the future. And then the thing that drives me nuts is they equate that with the faith that I have in Jesus. 
And I'm like, no, no, wait, 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 wait. That is not the same thing. Your faith in you getting an A on your test today is not the same thing. Your faith in you getting a parking spot when you drive into Hoboken is not the same thing <laughs> as my faith in Jesus Christ. But then they equate these things. To, and you, you say, wait a second. But some of you think about faith that way. You think your faith that you're going to get, I hope that it's going to be true. No, 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 no. That's not our faith in Jesus. God does not call us to place our faith in him blindly. I hate that idea, that whole idea that, oh, I just got blind faith. Well, then you haven't read scripture, period. Because the whole thing is written so that you wouldn't have blind faith. The whole thing is written so that you would have a foundation upon which to put your faith in the one who has proven himself faithful. That's what Hebrews is talking about when he says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. He's like, listen, God's not asking you to blindly take this step. Look at what happened. Now, you may go back to Abraham. He didn't have a lot before that on which, it, but you aren't Abraham. You exist generations later, and you've seen God be faithful and faithful and faithful, not just in Scripture, inside this room, inside of Anna's story. We've seen it. We have faith with our eyes wide open. And we've seen that faithfulness. That's the faith that we have. That's, don't talk about it like it's the same faith that you're going to get a parking spot. And the hope is the same thing. Like, I hope I'm going to get a... No, that's not what God's talking about. The best way to think about it, if I could illustrate it, and this is a bad illustration, but I, I was struggling with this one. So, but here's the way that God talks about hope. Think about it as if right now, let's say you're right now in debt, which you're not because... We, you've taken FPU and you know that that's not what God calls you to. But let's say by some crazy set of circumstances, you happen to find yourself in debt right now and you're trying to figure out how to pay that off and you want to be, you want to, you want to be out of debt. And then it's tax season. So you've recently, maybe you've filled out your, your tax refund and you filled out your tax forms and you sent those in and you know that, okay, you're getting this refund. And you know that that refund is enough to be able to pay off your debt. Now, you're sitting here and you would say, well, I'm in a pretty bad situation. I'm in debt right now. But I have hope because my refund check is coming. That's not you wishing that your refund check will come. That's, that's, not, that's not you having just a strong desire that the refund check will come. No, you know it's going to come. So you have hope. It's something that you look forward to, that you know is coming, that you have not yet experienced. That's what he's talking about with hope. He's like, we don't, we don't hope in heaven like we wish maybe it will be true. No, we have hope. We're living in a broken world right now, but we have hope. Why? Because that's coming. Not it might come, not maybe we desire for it, no. We look forward to that which we have not yet experienced, that we know is coming. Now, some of you are like, I don't know if I can trust the federal government that much. Okay, <laughs> I told you it wasn't a great illustration, necessarily perfect illustration. But you understand what I'm talking about. That's what God talks about when he says hope. It's not a, it's not a feeling that you have, a wish or a desire. No, I know something's coming and I'm looking forward to it. 
So I have hope. I, that is my hope. This is why scripture talk, constantly talks about hope with the words like assurance and confidence. It doesn't talk about it with words like wish. We, we, you, we have to change the way that we interact with that word in scripture. Every time you encounter it, you need to challenge yourself. Wait a second. Don't think about this the way that we typically think about this culturally. How does God actually teach us? What does he teach us about this idea of hope? So let's jump back to the passage and look at it that way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be aligned again that you see in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. This word is going to be used multiple times as we move through the rest of the letter. Why? Because from the beginning of chapter one, he's been trying to help you understand. What did we talk about last week? God has intentionally moved in your life, planned to move in your life before this whole thing started, not so that you could hoard it, but so that you could multiply it. God does not just draw you to himself. He draws you and calls you at the same time. And as he draws you to himself, he's calling you into something. This is really important because most of you think some people are called. Paul doesn't write this to the pastors of the church. He doesn't write it to the elders of the church. He doesn't write it to just a few people inside the church. He writes it to the entire church. He's made that clear from the beginning of chapter one. And he says to all of them, he wants, he prays that they would know the hope, what they have to look forward to, what they have to, what they get to move through this life with expectation of, to which all of them have been called. You say, well, Chris, maybe you're called. Maybe Anna's called into what she is. No, 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 no. If you've stepped into a relationship with Jesus, you are called. You have been called into this mission. The whole reason why he told you that he, before this whole thing started, that God set his love on you. The whole reason that he told you that before the whole thing started, God chose to be able to bring you into this is because he wants you to understand the significance, and the significance of the fact, not just that you've been saved, but that you have been called. That you have a mission We're going to say this multiple times throughout this letter. Maturity, maturity is someone who understands that I have not been rescued so that I can hoard it. I have been rescued so that I can bring it to the world, so that I can multiply. And as we said at the end of last week, this is not an option. It's an obligation. A calling is not an option. It's an obligation. He says, I want for you to know the hope to which he has called you. And then he begins to break down what that hope is. There's two aspects to that hope. The first one is this. He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So he talks about our inheritance, this incredible reality that when you step into a relationship with Jesus, that you are made, you become a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Not, are you, not only are you adopted in this family, but you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. When you hear that, your natural response should be, no way. That is not true. 
And if scripture didn't say it over and over and over again, you should maintain. There's no way that can be true. There's no way it's that good. There's no way that I actually have that kind of relationship with God. That's not possible except for the fact that God over and over and over again says it is. You know, we have a couple on our, man, I'm going to go so long. The, but we have, a, we, have a couple in our, we have a couple in our church that is adopting uh, two kids. They're older. And one of the things that's really difficult when you adopt older kids is that they really struggle to believe that you love them the way that you say that, that you love them. And, and oftentimes the parents will tell them, no, I love you. And they'll be like, okay, sure. And they'll say, I love you. And they have to keep saying it over and over and over again before it actually sinks in and, and they actually believe it. God, through Scripture, just keeps saying, now this is the relationship. You're co-heir with my son. That's how close I want for you to be with me. That's the relationship I want to have with you. And like adopted kids, we keep saying, I don't think it can be that good. Well, we need to awaken to the fact that it's that good. Yeah. It's that good. And he's, he says, one of, the th- one, of, one of the things that we get to look forward to is that with expectation, not that we wish. No, one of the things that we get to look forward to is our glorious inheritance and that we get to be with him in that way and experience the family and all that goes with this. Now, don't be thrown off by this holy people thing because some of you are here and that throws you off all the time when you read scriptures because you say, oh, the glorious inheritance is just for good people. <sighs> Again, when, when it comes to this word holy, we've, we've got to change the way that we think about this too because there's no point in all of scripture where God communicates to you that you could ever achieve holiness on your own. So some of you read this, you say, oh, it's just for good people. If that were the case, then it would be for no one. There's no place in all of Scripture. You can go through all of Scripture from beginning to end. There's no point at which it talks about someone being holy outside of what Jesus has done. It is not possible. Does God call you to it? Absolutely God calls you to it so that you realize you can't do it without him. He said, I want for you to step in. I want for you to, I want for you to be holy like I'm holy. And then he says, guess what? You can't do it. So I'm going to send my son to the cross and he's going to take your sin on himself. He's going to give his life for you. And then he's going to give you his holiness. It's the only way. It's the only way anyone is ever declared holy in all of scripture. So if you're here and you say, well, that's just for, no, 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 no. That's for individuals who have accepted the gift of Christ's holiness and have engaged that exchange with Jesus where he said, I trust you to take my sin and I trust you that you would give me this unbelievable gift. You know, people oftentimes ask this question. It's not necessarily a great question because the situation's weird, but they ask this question, you know, if, you were to die today and you stand at the gates of heaven, they ask you, you know, why should I let you in? What will you, what will you say? I don't think that's exactly how it's going to play out based on scripture, but I understand the point of the question. They say, what will you, what will you say? If your answer has anything to do with you, you're in trouble. 
And people will say, well, you know, I was a good person. I think I was a better person than most people. Well, that's not holiness. If your answer has anything to do with, with you and you being good enough, you're, you're in trouble. Because the only answer, the only answer is that, listen, I trust that your son, I trust that your son has taken my sin. I trust. He told me that if I would trust him with my sin, that he would give me his holiness. And that's all I have. All I have is the righteousness that your scripture and that your son said that he would give me if I would trust him with my sin. It's all I have. Because that's the only way to stand before God holy. The only way. There's not multiple ways. There's only one. And so he says we get to look forward to this because of the holiness that we've been given in Jesus. And then he continues. He says the hope isn't just the glorious inheritance that we expectantly look forward to. He says, but it's also the incomparably great power for us who believe. And this goes with something that he said earlier in chapter 1, because remember, he said that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In other words, you have all the nutrients that you need in order to grow, and now he builds on it and says you also have all the power that you need in order to be able to grow. Not to be everything all at once, but you have the power to be able to grow. And so he says, he's, the other thing that we get to look forward to expectantly, and this isn't in the next life, this is now. We, have to, we get to look forward expectantly to how God's power is going to work in us who believe in order for us to grow. Then he continues and he begins to break down what that power is. And, and just in case you thought it was an insignificant power, listen to what he says. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So just in case you're wondering what power that is, it's actually the same power that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead. This is no small thing. And then he, sometimes, sometimes Paul, he gets started with a sentence and it seems like he doesn't know when to end it. And the same thing is true here because he begins, he says, same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he begins to talk about Jesus' authority and he kind of ke- just keeps going. So he says, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so he begins to talk about, uh, oftentimes when Paul begins to talk about God's glory or God's power or God's authority, he just continues going. He's like, I, I, I can't quite say it enough things about it for you to understand how big and significant it is. And so in this situation, you see him do that again. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him this authority. He's over everything, every power, every dominion, every name. He's over all of it. And now God's placed him over this thing called the church and and to be able to move through and to fill all of that with what it is. And all this all goes back to him working out the purpose of his will And so he says, this is the power that you have available to you. And then he he does something interesting because he's talking to them about the hope that they have. But but then he takes a little bit of a break. And he goes back into something that he talked about a little bit in the the beginning of chapter 1. But it seems that he wants to make sure that they understand a little bit better. 
So he says this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's one of those really encouraging passages. He says, he says as for you, you were dead in your trans- transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. He says, he says, now wait, 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 before we go any further, I just want to make sure that we're clear about this. As for you, I've talked about everything that God's done, but as for you, here's the reality of it. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You had no way of being able to rescue yourself. You had no way of being able to bring yourself spiritually back to life. He says, I want, to, I want for you to see what Jesus has done, but I also want you to know this is the reality of where you were. And then he says something even more interesting and it's important for you to know, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is something that you really, that we need to understand. Inside of this spiritual battle in which we live, you need to know there is no neutral. And so Paul says, I want you to understand this about you. As for you, you were, not only were you dead in your transgressions and sin, but you were actually working against God. You were actually working for the enemy. You were actually working on behalf of the enemy. And he's not saying, okay, you intentionally or you, you consciously thought, no, he said, but you need to understand something. When you, are not, when you are working against God, you are working with the enemy. Not only were you dead in your transgressions and sin, but you were working for the enemy. And in our rebellion, with, our rebellion against God, in our pride in the face of the Creator, you were working in sync with the enemy. There is no neutral. All, all, many of us, we want to think, well, I'm not, and I'll have a conversation with people that say, I'm not necessarily against God or for God. Well, that's not how it works. No, not only were you dead in your trans- transgressions and sin, but you were working against God in sync with the enemy. This, is, this isn't just true of some of us. He continues, all of us also lived among them at one time, glorifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by very nature deserving wrath. He says, it's not, this is, I'm not just talking about some of us. I'm talking about all of us. As a matter of fact, Paul at one point says, I think I'm, I'm probably the worst of all of them. He says, all of us were in this place. And, and then he says another thing that's really important. It's not just that we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires, but also, he says this, like the rest, in other words, like all of us, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This word nature is really important because you need to understand when it comes to what stands between us and God before we step into this relationship with Jesus, when it comes to what stands between us and God, it's not just what we do, it's who we are. The problem is not just what we do, it's actually who we are. Romans talks about this a lot, our sinful nature. It's talking about the reality that at the core, at the core we're broken at the, at the core we're proud against in the face of our loving creator he says no the problem isn't just what we did by our very nature we deserve god's wrath by our very nature we deserve god's justice to be poured out on us it's not just what you do it's actually 
who you are. This is why Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be made new. You have to be created new. He says, I want for you to understand. Wait, guys, before we go any further, I want you to understand what you, but I want you to understand. I want you to understand the reality of where you were. This is so important. Listen to me. Listen. Come here. If you don't understand the depth from which you were saved, from which you were rescued, you will not understand the significance of the grace that rescued you. So Paul, before he goes any further, he says, we're going to talk, let me walk you through, but let me just, let's just clarify something. This is where you were. All of us. This is where you were. But because of his great love for us, this is where you were. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is where you were. But God stepped into your story. So if there's any question, let's just clarify. It's by grace you have been saved it is only by grace that you have been saved and then he continues to build on that he says and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus he's talking about the position that he's given us in the family in order that in the coming ages this is an amazing line He says this. He says, in order that in the coming ages, go ahead and jump to the next one. He might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, what he's saying here is this. He's saying that in the future. He says, this story that we're in the midst of, this isn't the only story. In the coming ages, as this continues on, as as we move through eternity, he says, in those coming ages, he's actually going to point back at this story. And as he points back at this story, he's going to talk about one thing. And when he references this story, you know what he's going to talk about? He's going to talk about his incomparable grace. When he talks about this story, he's going to say, you know that? That was about my grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then you find this verse This verse that many of us have quoted, you've heard me quote many times here. This is the context in which you find this verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. A proud Christian is an ignorant Christian, an immature Christian, if a Christian at all. Because when you realize where you were and you realize what he's done and you realize that from the beginning 
He intended, he planned to work and to move in your life when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You realize that you have nothing to boast about except for the grace of God. Because I want you to realize before we go any further, we stand in complete debt to his grace, owing everything to him and his grace, because all of it, every bit of it, not some of it, not part of it, all of it has been by his grace. And then, and then I love this transition because he walks them through this. He says, I want you to understand the depth of God's grace, the reality of this, where you were, what he saved you from. And then listen to what he says next. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. He says, I want you to understand the depth of God's grace. Why? Because you got something to do. I want you to understand what God has actually done in your life. All of it was by him and for him and through him. All of it. Why? Because you got a job to do. And he didn't do this just so you could sit on it. He did this. So you would step into, you are his handiwork. He's been, he, he talked in the beginning about how he's working through all of it, even the things that aren't his will, to work out the purpose of his will. He's working through all of it. He says, no, no, you're part of this now. You are part of this. He's brought you into this on purpose. He's brought you into this to be able to be part of how he's working out the purpose of his will. He's, he's, he created you new in Christ Jesus. All of this, you have experienced all of it, but not so that you can hoard it, so that you could step into that for which you've been called. I want you to know what you've been saved from. So that, so that you can live out with all that you have, that which you've been called to. May we, may we drown in the grace of God. So that we might live the life to which we've been called. The life for which we've been saved. Will you pray with me? Father. Hey. We're so incredibly grateful. We're so incredibly grateful for what it is that you have shown us. And I, I just pray that, I pray that today we truly would be overwhelmed. Pray that you would enlighten, you would open the eyes for us to be enlightened to the reality of the depth of both where we were 
and where you have brought us. I pray for those who haven't accepted that yet, that today they would decide, I'm not missing out on this anymore. That they would accept that in you. In Jesus' name, amen.